This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, April 12, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Science advances one funeral at a time. It's a grim thought, but one that ought to humble even the most rigorous scientists. So how do we begin to break down the scientific gatekeeping that has defined the avenues of acceptable inquiry as we Americans try to manage our own health? Cato's Jeff Singer comments. When I was on my honeymoon, my wife and I were in Vietnam. And I was feeling very sick. I had this weird skin rash and um, looked up a bunch of uh, options for medicines that I could buy uh, to deal with it. And we found one that was available at a, I want to say, pharmacy, yes, but also it was something like a, a CVS, but also like a 7 Eleven, um, and bought a drug there that took care of it within hours, and I felt felt fine. And uh, one thing we realized is that drug's not available in the U.S. at all under any circumstances or Europe or anywhere else or a bunch of other places. And uh, our conclusion was, you know, that, that when we looked up, like, what the effects of the drug were, and it wasn't, wasn't super happy with uh, what might have been the side effects of this drug, but I was darn lucky to have it at the time that I was able to access it, and we bought it over the counter. It was a very simple thing to do. Uh, my wife is maybe a little more uh, conscientious than most when it comes to looking up what drugs do, but uh, it is at least a little bristling to come back to the U.S. and realize it's something that you had success with simply not available. Well, that's an interesting story because uh, that Whatever that drug was that obviously worked and that you had every right to take anyway because you have the right to self-medicate, um, had you found out the name of it and suggested it in this country, likely it is you would have been dismissed as an uncredentialed person who's recommending some fringe uh, therapeutic that is not approved by the FDA or the public health authorities. And if you persist at it, you'll just be completely... Uh, mocked and and uh, shunned, uh, which is the phenomenon we see all too often today uh, and has, is standing in the way of scientific advance. I mean, when you think about it, as recently as the last century, uh, stories like yours uh, would often lead to, uh, you know, announcements and undertaking different, uh, different uh, clinical trials and and there was a real openness to new ways of looking at things. But in recent years, in the scientific community, um, there's become this, what I refer to as a priesthood of uh, certain individuals who hold certain credentials. Usually, they're tied to the government. Uh, usually, they have connection to the source of research funding, like the National Institutes of Health or, or the like. And um, you dare not challenge their understanding of things and their narrative. Uh, and that's what I wrote about in my article. In my article, I'm pointing out that COVID has kind of brought this whole thing to a head. We're seeing, uh, because of the digital age, the digital age has changed everything. I kind of, I've, I've uh, spoken to some people, not in the article, but I've said it's kind of analogous to uh, the Gutenberg printing press, the digital era. Um, it, 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 during Prior to the printing press, there was just the priest hood class that kind of had a monopoly on knowledge and everyone else had to take 
the the truth in quotes from them. And then when the printing press came out and and what was written suddenly became written in the common language and it became accessible to everyone, uh, a lot of people started forming different opinions and different interpretations. And you know, of course, we had the the Reformation occur. Well, similarly today, uh, any person really has the ability to go on the internet and get to look at the exact same specialized knowledge that you know, uh, let's say uh, the director of the National Institutes of Health gets to look at, or a professor at a major medical university. Um, and so what's happening now is you have a lot of people looking at this data, and they're coming to different conclusions or challenging the methodology. And uh, the establishment, the orthodoxy, is, is has become very intolerant of alternative viewpoints or heterodoxy. Uh, and uh, very dismissive of anybody who doesn't uh, sort of have a credential, and it's it's bec- it's become very uh, pernicious. It, it's, it stands in the way of making medical progress. It, am I wrong in characterizing the gatekeeping function of uh, at least American medicine as subjecting anyone who has maybe an alternative view to a bureaucratic process that almost no one can afford to engage with? Well, in order for those views to get accepted, yes, I think you're correct. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking as recently as like 30 or 40 years ago, for example, there was a, a, a Dr. Barry who thought, based on his observations, that maybe a lot of the times people get ulcer disease, it's actually caused by a bacterium, not by hyperacidity and stress. And uh, he went on to prove it, uh, and it got accepted. Um a host of things. A twenty percent of drugs that are prescribed in this country are prescribed what we call off-label, where the FDA has approved for it to be used for certain things, but they don't have any re- restrictions on what clinicians can prescribe it for. And so, twenty percent of the time, pres- uh, clinicians are prescribing it for things other than it was approved for, because they're hearing through sharing information with one another outside the you know the ivory tower, outside the central uh, temple. Uh, that, you know, this sometimes works for this particular condition. Now, sometimes they turn out to be wrong and they go down a blind alley. It looks like that's the case, for example, with hydroxychloroquine. Uh, for a while there, there were some smart people who had uh, had good reason to think that it might help treat COVID. But now there are a number of randomized controlled trials that, that show, no, it, it does not. But on the other hand, a lot of things are discovered that way too. So my point of my article is that the scientific, uh, what I call priesthood, the you know the establishment. I understand that they feel threatened by comments from the quote unquote peanut gallery, but sometimes these people have very valuable insights, and just because they may not hold a degree, let's say in medicine or epidemiology, doesn't mean they don't have talents, skills, and insights that could be very valuable. For example. Um, many, you know, economists are very good at crunching statistics. And when they review uh, a, a report in the medical literature, an epidemiologic study, and uh, and they look over the methodology used in reaching the conclusions, and they say, I, I disagree with your methodology. I see a flaw in the way you, you know, you've uh, adjusted for things. These people know how to work with numbers. They, they do that for a living. So take them seriously, even if they don't have a degree in epidemiology. And when, when I my article came out, it's it's interesting. A number of people who I mentioned in my article as sort of representing the interests of the establishment um, 
attack me on Twitter, just like they attacked the people I talk about uh, in my article. Uh, one person who's a physician said, you're a surgeon. You fix bodies. Stay in your lane. Don't comment on this. And I felt like saying, you know, I have a whole section of my article that gets into that. Um, and then uh, also a lot of comments were, we're, we're not against uh, people having other points of view. We're just against people being wrong. And of course, they know what is right. So they're the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, on that note, uh, when people are wrong, to the extent that we have a professional group of people who are deciding uh, who may uh, submit to this process or be involved in this process of uh, making determinations about the quality of drugs or therapies or surgeries, for that matter, um, they in preventing those people from having a spot on the stage to discuss them publicly, they're preventing a lot of good things from coming to the fore. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, just some examples, thalidomide which we all know was a, a drug developed to treat morning sickness and cause horrific birth defects. Uh, some, it was subsequently found to be very useful to treat leprosy and multiple myeloma. So somebody had the courage to see what else it could be used for based upon what was known about the way the drug works and you know, what, how it interacts with other parts of the, of the, of the body's processes. Um, lithium was originally used to treat bladder stones and subsequently it was found to be useful for treating bipolar disorder. I mean, I can give a go on and on with, with, with examples, but the, the problem today is, um, and President Eisenhower in his farewell address kind of warned about this, that when, when government money becomes intertwined with science, you run the risk of developing what he called a scientific technological elite. And uh, oftentimes, uh, researchers are afraid to challenge the narrative that is the preferred narrative of the people giving out the research grants. And it's understandable. And in my own work uh, with Cato, uh, I could, I'm not going to mention names to protect them, but there have been a number of times when I've spoken to academic researchers who've told me something very useful to me. And I've said, why don't you write this up? And uh, I get, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick to what I work on and do. And I, I could read between the lines. They're, they're fearful of what could happen. And uh, you see that not just in, you know, medical science, but climate science and a whole bunch of other uh, forms of science. You know, you have a, a group of people who control the purse strings and that influences uh, how, whether or not you're willing to challenge the, the establishment viewpoint. And it's understandable. So how do we empower individuals to take control of their own healthcare decisions without gatekeepers. I uh, certainly would want the advice of a physician before I made a big decision about my own health, but ultimately I have to be the one who is responsible for it. So how do we empower those people who really care about their own health to, uh, you know, it's almost an epithet to say, do your own research uh, because it's viewed as you're just uh, a pedestrian wandering into this very complicated area. But nonetheless, we have to be responsible for our own health. Well, you know, there are two separate sets of issues here. Uh, one issue, of course, is unfortunately, 
the government gets to decide what you can and cannot put into your body. And that violates your fundamental right to self-medicate. You shouldn't have, you, obviously a rational person is going to want to know what people who are expert in the subject think about a particular treatment. Uh, but at the end of the day, a person has the right to decide what they want to put into their own body uh, for their health or just for pleasure. So that's one issue. But aside from that, and the issue that I dealt with in my, in my article for reason, it's a tough one because uh, we're going to constantly have this tension between people who are experts, and we all want experts, there's no question, we value experts, and credentials, while they're not the be-all and end-all, they're very helpful for us as a way of kind of taking shortcuts to filter out, you know, who is likely to be an expert and who isn't. So we don't want to, you know, throw all of that out. On the other hand, um, I, I, what I conclude in my article is that uh, I said a little tolerance can go a long way. I think the um, attitude of the scientific establishment has to has to be one of more tolerance. Just like you know, the the general public is, needs to get used to the fact that we're never going to get rid of COVID, that it's going to be endemic. The scientific establishment has to get used to the fact that with the advent of the digital era, there are going to be a lot of people out there who have access to the same specialized knowledge they do. Some of them are going to be very smart and be very have very valuable things to offer. Some of them are going to be wacky. You don't have to consider every single suggestion that's put out there. You know, you don't have to. Flat earthers are not welcome. On the and there's a limited amount of time you have in a day to consider everything. But um, if you adopt more of a of a an attitude of tolerance, welcoming to people who are not necessarily credentialed to suggesting things that you entertain them, then when the experts, the so-called experts, dismiss them, at least it, it, it should be received better by, by the public because uh, the public knows that they don't dismiss everything, that they're, they're, you know, they, they, they welcome heterodoxy. That's, that's the conclusion I come to. I don't think there's an easy answer to the situation. We have this intersection of government money and, and government funding of research with a growing population of people who are educated in various fields and have access to the same information. Cato Senior Fellow Jeff Singer's new article in Reason Magazine is entitled Against Scientific Gatekeeping. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 